Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 44 of Daffy's Roundtable. It's time to talk about more dart frogs. In this episode, we sit down with Mark Pepper to hear the story of Understory Enterprises, how it was first founded, the work that was done to get dart frogs from Peru all the way to hobbyists in Canada, and just general dart frog husbandry. I'm super excited for you all to hear this episode. But before we do that, allow me to give a huge thank you to Exoterra for sponsoring the podcast and making this episode possible. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, let's get into this week's conversation with Mark Pepper, founder of Understory Enterprises. Mark, hello. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Thank you very much for joining me today. No problem. Uh, super excited to have you on and super excited to talk frogs as always. Um, so maybe let's just jump right in. Uh, how did you, before we get into all the understory uh, talk, how did you uh, initially get into the hobby and start keeping frogs? Um, I've always liked frogs and snakes since a little kid. Um, probably had my first exposure to dart frogs or color, colorful tropical frogs uh, sometime around kindergarten watching the Nat Geographic video that came out uh, coinciding with their I guess it was probably a 1983 issue. Um, and ever since then, I've been fascinated with the idea that somewhere in the world, there's frogs that are red and blue and green. And well, I guess we have green frogs in Canada, but all these colorful little poison frogs. So, yeah. um, and then, yeah, after that, it was, I was 17 before I was able to find any in Canada. And I got those at a reptile expo from Port Credit Pet Center. And it all sort of started from there. So. Awesome. Okay. And then, so how long between that and between the inception or the starting of uh, understory enterprises well i guess understory started when i was in university so that's probably 20 19 or 20 i guess it'd be about 20 so i would buy whatever i could find which was at that time there's hardly anything in canada so i started importing probably by the time i was 20 years old which would be like around the year 2000 maybe I started i had no no other options other than to start importing from the states and trying to get new stuff that way. So it's slowly, it, I guess very quickly I had to become a business in some sense. Um, well, I had to obviously justify spending all this money on for us. So I breed them so I could buy more and I never intended it to be my life's path. It's just a hobby, but um, I, I sort of used, you know, what money I make selling frogs uh, to buy more and help pay for school too. And then before I knew it, I was, you know, making enough in, you know, by second or third year in university, I thought that, you know, maybe, maybe there might be something to this. And then, but I realized, you know, the market in Canada was almost non-existent at that time. So I knew I needed to export and that's when I started shipping, you know, exporting to the United States. And then, you know, not long after that to Japan and Europe and, and that's where it sort of really took off. What is understory uh, enterprise? What do you guys do? Well, we're just, Breeders of primarily poison frogs, at this time exclusively poison dart frogs or arrow frogs, whatever you want to call them. Um, in the past, we bred tons of tree frogs, uh, mantellas and all that. But right now, exclusively with dart frogs and we'll have mantellas again in the future. And then on top of the frogs, we do a lot of plants. Uh, we've really expanded into, uh, you know, kind of the terrarium plants, not so much of the big house plant stuff, but I'd like to focus on the obscure uh, terrarium plants. We import stock from Peru for those from Ecuador occasionally. And then obviously get from other collectors too. So we want to have a large selection of terrarium plants. My goal is to have uh, as many site-specific plants as we can offer so that people can have, you know, a certain locality of frogs, especially like Peruvian stuff. And then the plants that naturally 
uh, grow alongside the frogs in nature so that they can have as biotope specific as possible terrariums. That is awesome. Now you're, you said you're importing the plants from Peru and Ecuador and uh, basically that. Are you also importing the frogs or are the frogs bred here in Canada? All the frogs we sell are bred here in Canada. We import stock uh, from Ecuador, obviously from Peru, which we've done for many years, uh, just small amounts for breeding stock. Um, I have in the past imported other species from Europe, um, but I don't primarily import from Europe, but everything we do sell is bred right here in Canada. So we only import for breeding stock. We only import small numbers for breeding stock. And then with Waikiri from Ecuador, we also import, which we, uh, what's, I'm not sure what the correct term is, but um, we, we import only pre-ordered animals, I guess, for other collectors too. And then we distribute them that way. So Awesome. And, and is it uh, directly from Waikiri, to over here in Canada, and then I guess you maybe ship off whatever uh, is for the USA orders, or does it stop in, in the US and then get no, shipped over? No, so like they come right to Canada, and then we ship them, you know, within a couple of days, we ship them on the end customer. So Waikiri has another distributor in the States, Indoor Ecosystems. They also handle our US exports. There are US distributor too, so they handle Waikiri stuff, goes right to them. We don't handle American orders from Waikiri, just Canadian ones, and a little bit of Japanese ones too. Awesome, that's that's very cool. Okay, now I, um, I've i done a little bit of diving on your... I've actually been on your website for many years now. I kind of enjoy going through the blogs. And, and terribly and stuff. Yeah, but the blogs are very interesting. Uh -huh. um, and in and, and some of the some of the blog posts, you talk about your experiences uh, going to Peru and um, sort of the, the initial finding of the frogs. Um, was was your trips... Were your trips to Peru uh, more of on the tourism, I want to see frogs kind of thing, or were they... Were they business trips? No, from the start, it was with the intent for business. So when I was in, uh, it's probably back in 2001, I got um, uh, an email from a fellow in Peru, uh, Manuel, uh, wanting to export frogs. Um, and obviously, I was really interested if we could set something up. And uh, he assumed that at the time that he'd be able to export them like he could with dried insect specimens. He was which was his previous business and they had what's called the calendario de casa for the insects at that time uh which essentially a quota system that allowed the you know dried desiccated specimens for for hobbies or whatever for pinning and art purposes uh they could export certain amounts then and he assumed that the frogs would fall into the similar thing and he'd be able to you know collect an export and uh so anyway he uh he wanted to start you know see if there's any way we could do some business. And I said, well, I'd be really interested in acquiring Peruvian stuff at the time. There's very little on the market. Um, and I, so he, I told him, well, look into it. Uh, you know, I'm really, really interested. And uh, he got back to me in a couple of weeks and said, essentially, it's a lot more complicated than I thought. There's this thing called CITES. There's, uh, we have to set up a zoo create arrow, which means in Spanish, like a breeding facility. And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. And it wasn't all like I thought. It's going to be really, really complicated and it's going to take years to set up and it's going to cost some money. And I thought, well, if I want to do this as a living, I need to have something kind of unique because, you know, it's going to be a hard sell to sell common species into Europe or to reach the market. But if I can get something started in Peru, then I think I'll have a kind of a unique opportunity to offer new legally sourced animals uh, uh, to the market. And that would hopefully help drive the sales of other species, you know, more common trade species that I was breeding as well. So I went down soon after that. To, uh, I think it was 2000, 2002 was probably my first trip to Peru to meet with Manuel. And we got everything started. And from then it took 
three years to get all the permits and play like various stages of permits. Obviously, Manuel's handled all this. He's a was a wonderful asset. I never could have done anything with Manuel. You know, pushing papers down Peru and making, you know, making making sense of all the bureaucracy and all that stuff. It was you know an incredibly long process, but it took from the time I we got started legally with it. Uh, you know, from the time we filed all the uh, requests and all the you know registered the you know when you registered the business down there and all that stuff, it took just over three years before we got our first export. So that was in I think October of 2005 was the first shipment that came out of Peru with CITES. Wow. And, and so that's all on the Peru side. Was it equally as complicated on the Canadian side? No, no. So when you, with the, and still this way in Canada, so to import CITES animals into Canada, all you need is an export permit from the country of origin. Okay. Um, people, private people can do it. It's better to do it as a business just for a little bit for tax reasons, but no. So you go, you need your, obviously you need a receipt, you need your CITES, you need your airway bill. And, um, I think that's about all you actually need. And then you go prepare your document package, take it to customs. Essentially they'll assess the tax on it. And the way you go, as long as your permits are in order, then it's pretty, the Canadian side is all straightforward. It was the, the Peruvian stuff getting the, you know, getting the approval for the zoo create arrows, you know, first step and then getting your collecting permits for a certain amount of breeding stock and then actually breeding them and waiting to have, you know, waiting for the whole life process. And then having the inspections, you know, there's inspections every step of the way for egg to tadpole to froglet and then froglet's large enough to export. And then all, you know, it just took time and everything was, it seemed painfully slow at that time. Now I'm completely used to you know, waiting the three years doesn't seem like a long time to wait for something now, but when you're a 20 year old kid wanting desperately to get something started, it was pretty painful to wait that long. But yeah, three but years in the meantime, I was frogs. traveling to Peru, using every excuse I could to get back down to Peru. And, uh, you know, we go look for obviously new stuff and, you know, explore what we thought were unknown regions. And so it was an interesting time for sure. That's very cool. Um, so you were actually part of the inception of creating the, I guess, the breeding farm down there. Yeah, I spent a lot of time working with Manuel, you know, showing him what to do. But he, I mean, I can't take any credit for for any of the, the work on the ground. I mean, he made everything possible, but I would guide him as best I could and, you know, took a lot of trips with him. I was spending, you know, at that point in time, I'd go down probably eight or nine times a year down to Peru to, to you, know, over, you know, oversee things, build terrariums, uh, build cages. And then obviously the fun part was traveling. So um, I always like going to new spots. I still do. Um, hopefully find new species or new color morph. I don't think there's a lot of new species left to be found, but I'm sure dozens and dozens and dozens of, of new color morphs of different species out there yet. Have you ever discovered the new species? Yeah, a couple, not indirectly. I never, I don't think I found one that I ever thought was a new species right off the bat. Like Amarega pepperi was one that I thought was a new form of Bassari until they sequenced it. And Evan Toomey realized the call was different, but my ears are terrible for things like that. So I didn't. <laughs> Audibly, I just thought it was a bassari a little farther to the south. Uh, Renino Maya Benedict was one we discovered with with Evan Toomey as well. Um, and that we, again, at the time, we just thought it was a, you know, fantastic new form of Renino Maya Fantastica. Uh, but then genetically and geographically, it is, you know, isolated to a little different area geographically. But we assumed at the time uh, it must be a new form of Fantastica. But again, this is all before molecular, you know, all the molecular genetic stuff really took off. It was just, you know, in the at the dawn of that. So Evan and Jason were the kind of first guys on the scene. Um, Evan Toomey and Jason Brown. So I'm talking about that had access to the laboratories in the United States. So they would sequence this stuff and and that shed light on like this actually a new species or this is just another morph of the species and all stuff that was out of 
way over my head, but it was, it was neat to work with those guys. That's very, very cool. Is it, uh, is it peppery, peppery after Mark Pepper? Yeah, yeah, they named it after me uh, sometime 2009, or I'm not sure when the paper came out, but uh, yeah, they named that one after me. I was, and a, a couple other species were described in that paper as well. So. That's really cool. You have a frog named after you. Yeah, I do. <laughs> That's really cool. Okay, Thanks. awesome. Uh, so, what when you, you you mentioned going out and collecting and looking for a new species was um, did was every new species a new permit that you had to acquire to be to have them uh, as breeding stock or was it yeah. sort of we're doing dart frogs any dart frogs is included? no 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 it wasn't that easy so yeah so manuel again he did all the paperwork so we would apply if he were he would apply for say we want our anita may imitator he would say i'd like you know 64 specimens and then they would argue with that send it to the legal team in lima and then maybe in a year we'd get a quota for 60 or 50 or whatever And then every time, you know, you know, so you get your permit and you get, you have to, there's a gear. Yeah, so once you do your collecting, you have to sort of go into the local. It was at the time in Reina and now Serifor, but you have to get, or you would have to get a gear to transporte if it was collected in a problem. So we were based in Loretto. And then, so he would have to get, when he went collecting, he would bring, bring them to the host or whatever of Serifor or in Rena and have to get a guia transporte, which is a transfer permit from one departmental or province to bring them back to the breeding facility in Iquitos. And then they stayed in Iquitos and then they're under supervision of in Reina. So everything that was collected for the breeding farm remains property of, of the Peruvian authorities, essentially. It's just there are, you know, they're Manuel's or ours or whatever for the breeding purposes and the offspring we have the rights to exports, but all the adult, the parental stock remain in in custody of Manuel and so they could take them back at any time if they deemed something was amiss or, or whatever. But um, so yeah, they, the, the collecting was limited to breeding stock, different, you know, different species or different populations, whatever we had permits for at the time. So we were, for the first years, we were constantly applying for, for new permits for new species and, and working that way. So. Very, very cool. And, and now is, is it sort of set up in a lab sort of setting? So the frogs are indoors in terrariums or yeah. are you? So yeah. we initially, we did a sort of a hybrid thing. We had a big lot in Iquitos that we did um, for the first couple of years. We had a lot of cages we built. Um, they're about, if I remember correctly, three meters front to back, two meters wide and about two meters tall, all screened in double layers of screen with doors that you could open and walk in we planted those up um the frogs did really well like that but we kept having trouble with spiders getting in and catching frogs okay and i think we we're bringing in egg sacs when we we're collecting the leaf litter so then we just switched everything into kind of european style that what you think of for dart frog breeding it's all inside with air conditioning and everything like that awesome. um and they did obviously just as well that way too but it's kind of kind of neat to have them in the open air um i think their behavior is a little bit a little bit more interesting watching give them all that space actually in the environment. But uh, yeah, we kept having issues. And we had it, there's Aikido's at that time, there's rogue cats everywhere. So you'd find that the cats would be on top of the cutting. It's just little problems you never imagined. So it was much easier to manage everything, having them all completely, you know, even though they're in a, in a walled in lot right inside of the city, um, it was better just to have them in the, and easier to manage, I guess, and to have an idea of what we actually have for stock and what's breeding. I mean, it's easier in a, you know, a 20 gallon terrarium to know what's going on than a sure. 200, I don't know what the equivalent would be, probably 500 gallon cage or something that you can walk around in. So. 
Yeah, you can't even find the frogs sometimes when you when it's well, they're actually surprisingly visible, but you never know exactly what's going on or where the eggs are if you're stepping on something. So it was just it's we eventually made the switch to uh and it made it easier to come time, like especially for Manuel when inspections when they want to see something, if the inspector, you know, the authorities are there looking for something, and you're kind of rooting around a huge cage and it's just a lot easier to point out something in a terrarium and have your inventory outlined there than than in larger cages. So for sure. Did the authorities give you like, did, was it a, a big headache that they, were they pursuing you guys for a while? No, no, no. It's all like, it's just paperwork, right? Mammal, you know, breeding frogs is not hard. It's, right. it takes time and you know, it never been done in Peru before something like that. So, um, but it's, no, there's never been issues as far as that. It's just the, for me that my headache was, it was just waiting. Just the processing time, the bureaucracy is the wheels move slowly down there um they did at that time anyway it seemed like so no it's just you know the frogs are easy to breed if i mean everyone in the world's breeding dart frogs now and you know it's not it's not hard you you feed them you give them the right humidity you're gonna get eggs before long then you're gonna get tadpoles and then you're gonna have froglets so the hardest thing for us was uh you know getting a source of springtails that that would live in the climate down there so we finally that was probably the you know the key when manuel isolated the kind of springtail that um that would that we could produce easily down there then that that made producing whatever amount of you know frogs we needed quite easy so that was the hard part was always the food um you know we we'd get flightless flies in from the lab and they'd be flying in no time but so we give up on flightless flies every fly he's ever fed is flying around down there but the frogs wow. don't care so that's really cool so and so the springtails that we have here in like in the hobbies don't work down there I don't know. I never brought any. I assume they would, okay. but we, I didn't want to risk, you know, having a bag full of springtails and For getting sure. all into customs in the in Lima and uh, ruining my reputation or my name or, you know, I don't know how they look on it. So I never risked it. So I assume they would do just fine. But we never we didn't have access to any other springtails. We had to find a kind, and Manuel eventually found a kind that the cultures really well. And it looks very similar to what we have here. Awesome, more robust. Yeah. Were, were you able to? I guess I, I don't know if this question even makes sense, but were you able to collect any insects there that would have been good feeders or alternates to fruit flies? Yeah, we've mammals. He's tinkered around over the years with like different grasshoppers and stuff like that, but uh, crickets. Um, he, he like his first interest was insects, so he's he's played around with a lot of that kind of stuff. But now we're just strictly on uh, fruit flies and. Uh, we collect occasionally a kind of termite that the frogs really like too, which is really nice to have that nice fatty food source down there that we don't have up here. Um, so yeah, just fly springtails and occasionally collected termites. But yeah, in the past he did a lot, uh, a lot more with, uh, with some crickets and stuff like that. But we, I don't think he ever had a kind that would breed like, uh, you know, the North American ones Like you get hundreds, but you'd never get tens of thousands. So it was never, um, and I don't know if it's just a, a thing to do with, you know, a, a trait of the, the species he was raising or just maybe poor, you know, knowledge or just something that are, something that are missing from the diet, but we never got, he never got to the point where there was a, you know, we get a boom in crickets, like, you know, we do when we raise crickets here. Like, I don't know if you've hatched pinheads, but you know, yeah, we, lots. We <laughs> cloud of pinheads when they, they hatch right. So for sure. Yeah. Or even like the, 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 the amount of fruit flies you get from just one culture is. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's just, it's so easy to do fruit flies. It's, yeah, it's almost mindless. So. Okay. So now that you have everything set up and you're doing all that, um, do you remember what the first frog or the first couple of frog species that you um, imported oh, into yeah. Canada was? 
Yeah, the first two we exported were Renita May Reticulata and Renita May Amazonica. Awesome. At the time, Amazonica was called Venture Maculata. There was no official Amazonica. So they came as Venture Maculata and only in later sets of permits, then they would come as Amazonica. But this was before all these nomenclatural changes. So, So, yeah, those are the first two Amazonica and Reticulata. Awesome. And now it's just many, many more species. Yeah, I don't. I have to sit down and figure out how many species and more so over the years, but there's been, I mean, we've been doing it for, it'll be, um, it'll be 19 years, I guess this 19 or 18 years this year that we've been exporting. So it's, uh, we took, you know, a few years off uh, during COVID and, uh, um, but yeah, a lot of stuff's come out. So You also acquired some land down in Peru just for like conservation reasons. Do you want to maybe talk about that for a minute? Yeah, we just, we had the opportunity, uh, this is again, really early on in Chizuda, which is, uh, for poison frog people, it's kind of a hot spot. There's about eight species in one hectare there. So we had the opportunity to buy, um, a small plot of land up in Chizuda that was, you know, loaded with frogs. So it's, I think it's not quite 10 hectares maybe, uh, which is less than, I'm not sure how it works out into acreage, but roughly let's say 20 acres. It's, you know, very small in the grand scheme of things, but it's kind of neat that, you know, Jason Brown, there's been a lot of research done on poison frogs there. Uh, and it, what's the Japanese version of the BBC's film, the series there. Um, so it's kind of neat that it has been used for some interesting stuff beyond what we, you know, purchased it for. We just wanted to sit on it. At least there'd be a little spot for a few more years that there'd be frogs around Chizuda, but there's still like tons of frogs around Chizuda. But um, yeah, so there's that. We got a small, you know, 23 acres outside of the Kitos or something like that, or 23, I guess it's hectares. Um, and then, you know, in Terrapoto where we have the house at, um, so yeah, we have a few pieces, but I, I mean, for conservation purposes, it's good for a while, I guess, but I mean, you're ideally you want, it needs to, if it doesn't back into, uh, a larger protected area at some point, it's, you know, not my lifetime, probably not my grandkids lifetime, but at some point it's, it's going to dry up if everything else around it is, is chopped down. So. For sure. Um, which I'm not too, you know, in Chizuda, it's pretty rugged slope, but, you know, the properties around Kitos are quickly, it's quickly getting uh, um, encroached upon. I mean, the, the city's growing, the urban sprawl is is quickly, uh, you know, quickly moving its way. You know, Kitos and Nauda at some point are almost going to connect. And so it's, I mean, that's just the way the world goes. But. For sure. Um and you mentioned something about building a house just now. Sorry. In, in, in yeah, we had a house for a couple of photos that we had on Airbnb. And, you know, we had a bunch of you know friends stay there and, and whatnot. Kind of like, uh, you know, base camp for us when we're traveling through Terrapoto. And, uh, yeah, we built, I don't know, when we built that now. Everything's been a blur. With I just got back to Peru for the first time in three years in December of this past year. So. I'm not sure my timeline for when stuff happened. So everything kind of stopped for a few years for me. So, uh, but probably five years ago, we, we finished that. Maybe. That's very cool. So uh, you said you were just there. Um, for was there how was, yeah, yeah, how was that? And did you, you said you hadn't been there in a while. Did you see any uh, big differences in like loss of species of frogs or, no. plants or anything like that? Actually, I was surprised. Um, so prior to you know five years ago say they repaved the the highway 5n or what we call the carretera terrapoto uh so they cut down a lot of the the forest and the vegetation on the the roadside but uh 
that's all I was surprised to see all the vegetation back right right up to the road. Uh, so we'd find species like Amarega bass or Antrivotata right alongside the road again, which I hadn't seen in five or six years or, wow. or 10 years since they were doing the construction. So we, we used to initially find frogs right down to the road. Imitator now you find right at the road again in the Heliconia. So I saw actually more stuff than I with with minimal effort than I ever thought. You know, there's been years since we've seen that many frogs right along the road, which is really nice to see the vegetation come back and the area recover from the construction. Um, where else did we go? Yeah, we went, no, everywhere we went, we found, except for, you know, one, one forest that uh, people, have, other people on the internet have touched on already in the frog world, the Pongway Kanarachi Forest or Kilometer right. 7, we called it, uh, or the Lowland Fantastica. One of their main localities has been completely cut down, but again, that we've been waiting for that for years is a 45 hectare piece of land and uh you know everything around it is basically going to oil palm uh palm africana so it was a matter of time but it's sad to see that because uh you know many people frog people always go there because you know it's a great spot you see lots of frogs that was my you know negative i saw everything else i was surprised how how good everything you know the populations that we saw we didn't do a ton of traveling it was more a fun trip. I hadn't seen Manuel in almost three years. I went down with a couple of friends from up here. So we, you know, we spent a lot of time around the pool and having a good time, but it wasn't so much a, a herping trip, but uh, more of a just celebrating fucking getting back to travel and things getting back to yeah. So where in general do you find the dark frogs? And and based on that, do you think we as keepers are actually setting up our vivariums correctly? Oh, uh, that's a good question. No, so poison frogs. A lot of them do really well in disturbed habitats. So they're, uh, it's kind of, you know, people kind of trail through something, you, you'll find them along trail side often because it sort of opens up the canopy a bit. And then the plants, their host plants, like huge different bacchus, like these are things I call xanthosomas and bromelia or whatever they'll use will, will then grow in generally into these areas. So you see more of the poison frogs around an opening or clearing or a tree falls in a good spot. So they do pretty well in more disturbed forests, a lot of the species. Um, and then like I was saying around the road, like there's so many, so this is really precipitous kind of chaotically folded mountain range we're talking about. So there's streams that run, you know, every, at regular intervals, there's a stream draining the mountains. So that'll eventually cross the road. So you climb up those streams uh, it's, you know, even in the dry times, it's a humid, uh, a real humid corridor that you can follow into the mountains. And then that's where the frogs will, will congregate, especially at the Amarega. They're always usually found closely associated with streams of bass or the Canarachis. I mean, Trivitata, you'll find anywhere. You'll find them in the middle of towns. You'll find the tadpoles and, and you know, footprints of hoofstocks. It's, the frog is everywhere. It, uh, it does not, not care about deforestation. It doesn't seem, it seems like it does better around settlements. What species, sorry, is that? Amarega trivitata, or the, the three-stripe wow. frog, right? it's a you know, large neon green or yellow striped frog. Is it sort of like every half an hour you're spotting one frog, or is it like you're walking up and you're seeing frogs constantly? No. So in the right area, it's uh, like relatively – I mean, everything – every species is different. The ones you want to find, you never find, but you're always going to see trivitata. If you're in the right habit, you're in the right area, you're going to find trivitata quite easily. And then usually there's an associated – another associated amarega that you'll like Canelli or altamazonica if you're you know they're cryptic but they're quite abundant imitator and imitator complex like sorensis if you're in the area they're easy to find generally because you hear them first but frogs like fantastica which just have a really soft and in a forest almost an inaudible buzz call 
those are the ones that are hard to find. So I always say you never find a Fantastica, they find you. Or eventually you walk around enough, you'll see one. And then, you know, but they're so alert and they're so fast. I think half the ones are gone long before we realize they're they're there. Yeah. But uh, so it all depends on the species. But they're generally they're if you're in a good good spot of forest where there's a good population, you're gonna see quite a few. And the nice thing about Peru is that it's it's rare that you know, like, you know, Costa Rica, you might have one or you know, I think there's five or six species in the whole country or in Peru, you have places where you'll find nine species in the same hectare of forest. It's crazy. And commonly four or five species. So it's nice that, you know, you're not just looking for one species. There's, there's, there's plenty to see usually. You did just mention Costa Rica. Um, I know you've done some work with the Costa Rican Phibian um, Research Center. Yeah. Um, do you want to maybe touch on that for a second? Yeah, in the in the past, well, years ago now, yeah, Brian would Brian Kubicki from the CRARC would send me a few species, and I bred them here and split the proceeds with him. But yeah, I no longer work, unfortunately, with any of those. I did a heck of a lot of downsizing years ago, and uh, just for various reasons. So, uh, but yeah, for years we we did a we did I wouldn't say a lot, some good work with Brian. I have nothing but admiration for Brian and what he's done in Costa Rica. I think he's a he's an amazing, incredible guy. What he's what he's got. You know what he's accomplished down there is really impressive and uh you know anyone going to costa rica cool if you're into frogs you don't go see the costa rican amphibian research station i mean every postcard species in the country is pretty prevalent on his property there and you're going to see them too so cool okay so we'll jump off the frogs to the plants um yeah. when did that start when did the importing start up and was it also linked to um the same like are you also getting them from Man manuel in peru yeah. or is it a okay yeah, so again, years and years ago, we started. I Man, well, started the process of a vivero and for plants, and it's a similar idea. You get the permits, you can you know collect your stock plants, and then you grow them and propagate them, and then you can send them to me, and I do the same thing here. And uh, at first, you know, I would get in. You know, there's really well-known companies in Ecuador that do really phenomenal stuff on us just a massive scale now that are exporting plants all over the world. So I I would get in on imports from them initially, and I still do. Um, and the idea with Peru was to get like, I like, you know, I don't want to focus on the big showy house plan. I don't want to do, you know, anything that has already been covered. I want to focus on the obscure ferns and, and the tiny phylodendron and the small aeroids, uh, kind of stuff that gets, that has been, I think, overlooked or maybe not focused upon by the other, other exporters up in Ecuador. And, um, because that's what interests me. And then I think those also lend themselves well to terrarium use. So I think it's really cool now that finally we have, you know, some Peruvian site-specific plants that I know, you know, they came from the same forest that our frogs originated in. And I think it's kind of a neat opportunity for hobbyists to put together more or less biotope-specific uh, terrariums, at least as far as the plants and frogs are concerned. So. When I first started keeping dart frogs, I would always complain because there was no way I could find plants that would suit my vivariums. And this was way before I was um, even coming to the expos and seeing your booth. And so I would say I got very excited to finally yeah. see your booth and see the plants that you were, uh, that you had available for sale because it's exactly that. It's all the all the other plant sellers or anybody that's selling plants is usually very focused on house plants or things yeah. that survive. But nobody's focused on those tiny plants that look good in a small vivarium with a couple of frogs. Um, so yeah, th thank you for doing that. <laughs> oh, well, it's been honestly, it's, you know, thank me. I do it because I, I love it. Like I get huge kick out of the little fern. There's so much obscurities down there that I mean, I need 30 lifetimes to scratch the surface of the depth of diversity on on a lot of this stuff. It's just fascinating to be able to get it, and and you know, you walk 
more you, the more you look, the more you find too. Especially once you get into the mid elevation forest, it's just an endless amount of, of interesting plants that are that are creeping around down there. So. For for sure. So so I guess this goes for both the frogs and the plants. It's not a sort of the third generation that you're selling, or even like that they have the, the the stock plant, the stock plants or frogs in Peru. They're breeding those. They're sending yeah, those over. And yeah. Then, so he'll collect piece of a philodendron and you know how they go you just you know get pull off a you know collect your piece of this plant and you cut it down to the nodes like before long you got more plants to sell it's you know really easy stuff uh none of it's complicated the ferns take sometimes a little more you know tinkering to get get established some of the microgrammas and the little uh, some of the elaphagolossums can be a little more sensitive but yeah it's the same idea he, he's got a vivero license and so he grows you know small amounts um uh, ships them up to me. Um, and, uh, then, yeah, then I, you know, keep them in quarantine for quite a while, make sure, you know, but they, they're all coming in clean and safer, but yeah, they come with their phytosanitary permits and all that stuff and bring them into Toronto and go to the airport and pick them up, clear customs. And, and then several months later, hopefully I do well enough with them that I can start selling them. I mean, kill the odd thing here and there, unfortunately. For sure. It's how it goes. The odd thing melts on you that you don't want. It was always the one you like the most too. But that's <laughs> the game with plants. So. For sure, for sure. Awesome. Okay, so now now that you have them all in Canada, um, and and in your facility or, or yep. whatever, um, what's the what's the process like there? Um, well, how long how long does it usually take from when you receive a frog and or plant to when usually you have them available for sale? Um. Usually I guess plants, it varies. Yeah, it varies. I mean, frogs. So I get them in. You know, I got to quarantine them usually. I I usually keep them in quarantine for about six months just to make sure everything's good and you know there's never any problems. But just that's prevention is a pound of cure, as they say. So usually, it's a good year usually before I get around to have an offspring. In a good case scenario, some stuff's a little more stubborn and doesn't breed right away, or it takes a while to whatever for whatever reason start breeding. But usually it's you know, a year to 16, 14, 16 months, um, you know, you get them grown up and, you know, to adult size and breeding. And then, you know, from the time you get an egg for Rene to Maya, for example, usually, you know, your, your egg stage is two weeks and your tadpole stage is about six weeks. And then usually I like to grow them up four or five months till they're almost full grown or full grown before I sell them because, you know, full size for Rene to Maya. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know dart frogs is still not very big. So we like to get them pretty much to adult size and then that gives them the best chance possible of, you know, making the trip and acclimating well in the new, in the new keeper's possession too. So yeah, as for plants, it's a similar, or not quite as long. It all depends on the species. I mean, some of, I've had ferns that, you know, that I bought even from Ecuador years ago that I don't think I've ever sold a piece of. I might have four new fronds in five years. Like some of these are blossoms. I don't know whether it's my care or yeah, I'm sure it is have to do with that or, you know, species, some of them just super slow going. So it's kind of, some stuff I'll probably never sell that I've got just because I want to, I'll never feel like I have it. It's a kind of touch and go with some things, but generally the, the aeroids and stuff, the, and a lot of the microgrammas, it's, you know, it's probably close to a year before I, you know, feel like I've got enough to start offering it on the market. So. Awesome. Very, very cool. Okay. So you mentioned Ranatomea there. Um, yeah. How, how do you, what's your general, and I, I, I guess this also varies depending on species, but what's your general Ranatomea breeding setup like? Um, are you doing pairs? Are you doing groups? You no, know, always done Ranatomea in groups. Um, yeah. yeah, I've always, so 
with, you know, I would, you know, especially, you know, stuff I bred and then I, you know, build groups that way. I would always take four to six, what I thought looked like a nice group as juveniles and throw them into a terrarium, usually 10 to 20 gallon or a 16 inch cube size tank, smaller terrariums. Um, and, you know, the sexes will fall out where they may. And usually they uh, get a good breeding group that way, but I've always done well with them in groups and smaller terrariums. So. Awesome. And, and do you, um, do you use like film canisters as well yeah. for them to lay their eggs in? Yeah. A lot, a lot of film canisters still, uh, a lot of species are you know, like imitator. They'll glue their eggs on the, behind a leaf on the glass. So you got to kind of scrape them off in those situations, but yeah, breeding them as long as you got enough food, it's no, no issue to, to reproduce any of these things. Yeah. And, and so you do pull the eggs, then you don't wait for them to become tadpoles. No, I pull them when I find them, but there's always, you're constantly, chasing a tadpole out of your water reservoir or something too, if you choose to. I mean, they're, they always get stuff past you, especially like the imitator and stuff. They're pretty sneaky. So you often see a male with a tadpole on the back. Uh, but uh, yeah, when I find eggs, I pull them and raise them that way. Just because then I, because, you know, the way exports and everything work, I need to know my stock or what I'm going to have. So I know if I have a tadpole, there's a really good chance in a few months I'm going to have a frog with to sell. So, you know, we got, a lot of countries, you know, they need to get an import permit based on our export permit. So they're we're often working six, eight months in advance with some of our, our buyers. So they have to, we have to be able to project what we're going to have. So if I just left it all to chance, well, it's an, I'd never know accurately more or less what I'm going to have to be able to, you know, then sell these. So just, right, right. You know, it's just inventory management, essentially a little easier if I pull them. So. No, that makes sense. And and do you find that, uh, and maybe this is a all dark frog question, or maybe specifically rent to me, do you find that they're seasonal with their uh, breeding? Not so much. No, like what, what I do is we dry them out. So we reduce spraying uh, for several months at a time because they'll continue to breed, but I worry about, you know, I, I think that's stressful for, for sure. long-term. I don't think that's good for the females. So that's why I like to have, you know, three or four minimum of three or four breeding groups often or when I can uh, of each kind. So I, you know, I have one breeding and then one or two cycling or two breeding to one cycling kind of thing. So give them, give the females a rest because they will breed year long if you let them. But I think you're going to see, I don't, I don't think that's good for the, you know, the overall health of the females. I, I mean, I think something bothers the males any, but, but for the females putting out all those eggs constantly, because it's not, they don't breed year long in the wild. There is a, a rest period for sure when it dries out. Um, so I think that should be, considered in captivity as well that's interesting my uh my my tinctorious um i i do give them a rest period as well like i do do the dry cycle as well for a couple mm -hmm. of months but if i don't they will breed year round almost yeah. stops my phylobates will do the same thing yeah um but i only have the ranitime of vanzellini or vanzellini yeah. eye that's or, a good uh, choice yeah yeah <laughs> um from you actually oh. <laughs> and um I, it seems like they will they'll they'll breed for two months and then stop for several months and breed again for two months and stuff. So I'm not sure either if it's my care, if I'm doing something wrong, no, or if they're just seasonal. Some of them will take breaks often too. And that's a good thing. I mean, I think yeah, people we often hear that from people. Why do they stop breeding? Well, I think you know, if the animals are healthy and it's probably good. They need they're regulating and it's nothing to worry about. That's that's what they should be doing, I think. So but yeah, you get guys like Tinctorius and stuff too, they're crazy for wanting yeah. to breed. When they settle in, I mean you got Often you get you find pairs every five days. It's amazing what they'll they'll want to pound out. So it's you got to slow them down for sure because I think it it will lead to detrimental effects on the females over over time. I'm not sure how long it would take, but I think it's definitely a good idea to, to rest those frogs. Yeah, and do you think that it might have also affect the tadpoles? Yeah, I think that's 
a lot of times, like, you know, we don't see much spindly leg, but when I do see it, I often, you know, I always go back. I don't think it's an issue with my water or issue or anything. I go back on it. If I ever do see spindly leg, I don't know what's time to, for sure, or long past time to rest that pair. Uh, Cause that means I always think that issues like that, you can trace it right back to the health of the female or your breeding stock. It's a, uh, I don't think it's a tadpole issue. I think it's a, an issue that goes back to the, the quality of the eggs that are being produced. I think the female is just overbred and, and needs to needs a good rest and time to build up, you know, reserves again. So. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, what, what's your uh, supplementation? Like, what do you use for supplements and what is your cycle like? Yeah, I use Rapashi stuff. So I use the Calcium Plus pretty near every feeding. And again, keep in mind, we feed every other day. And then I add in about every 10 days to two weeks the, the vitamin multivitamin one i can't remember the exact name of that and super bite yeah Superbite, yeah thank you Jeez, yeah. i use it every <laughs> yeah. um and then vitamin a about every three weeks to a month uh, and i am not religious about any of this it's just you know more or less for all this stuff but yeah oh, that so makes sense that's, that's my uh that's my rotation for the for the three supplements but i only use rapashi supplements Awesome. Uh, yeah, it seems it seems it, it it is like probably my favorite supplements. I use it with all my all my animals, but it also yeah. seems like it's probably the easiest one out of all the more dark frog specific ones to get here in Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's well widely available, and uh, I think quite a good product. I'm, I've been using it for years now. I'm really happy with it. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so you just said feeding every every other day. Yeah, well, a lot of times froglets will feed something every day like one day will be a spring when they're young one day will get springtails the next day will get flies kind of thing uh, but the breeders and then froglets that are you know long at a sensitive froglet stage that you know got some good beef on them and all that and they'll get it every other day so awesome but and feeding that many sorry not yeah, our breeders are every other day yeah well so feeding that many frogs every other day means you go through a lot a lot a lot of fruit flies yeah we use quite a few flies yeah <laughs> yeah you know, how do you manage um like keeping it on schedule and not crashing all your cultures do you like do you, is it uh, religiously weekly you're making yeah. cultures or every yeah. week the same Monday, monday's culture making day we'll let them sit for 48 hours wednesday throwing the new flies into the freshly set up cultures and then that way you never run out and then we have our own room just for flies so it's kept stable so there's no you know swings you know people have some problem with the change of the seasons like try to mitigate that as best as possible so um so yeah we don't leave a lot to chance we got a lot of frogs to feed you can't have culture crashes so when i set up i don't know how many we set up every week anymore but um doing over 700 at one point an hour maybe 100 and maybe close to 100 a week or something so did you say 700 every week I think at our, at our peak like this is 2015 or something or 2013 when we had that probably when we produced more than we ever did um there's a couple of crazy years we were shipping a lot to europe and um yeah, I had a lot of mantella breeding back then too. So, uh, yeah, we went through a lot of flies. But now <laughs> I consider myself semi-retired. So, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, I don't have near the uh, near the amount of uh, frogs that I used to, which is good. I'm really in, I'm enjoying it, being a little more focused, and uh, you know, yeah, having more fun building terrariums again. And looking forward to building some bigger terrariums. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with, uh, especially in Canada. There's some great, really inspirational guys like uh, Indra and. Uh, Alex uh, Majutera and then Braden Weisberg. Uh, yeah, I just butchered his name. I'm sorry if he's listening, but uh, <laughs> some really interesting, inspiring stuff going on in Canada with the terrarium stuff. So I'm excited to build some larger ones. And um, yeah, 
it's, yeah, it's, I'm having a lot of fun with it. So. That's awesome. And, and you're, you're sort of focusing, you said you're, um, I guess, on certain species. What are the species you were hoping to or are currently um, focusing on? Or like, well, no, obviously not all of them, but like kind of what direction us, are you hoping to like Denver Bay, so I've got, you know, you have to have, my favorites are Renitomea. Okay. Um, yeah. Always be my favorites. Uh, then we've got all their uh, colored bread and butter species that you need to have for for the market, the worldwide market. Like Azuria's, you you need that frog because it's uh, everyone wants the blue frog. Everyone um, wants the blue frog. Yeah. Animals, uh, and what I'm looking forward to working with now are some of the the larger frog again. So I'll keep some Salatica from the Waikiri imports. So that's why I'm you know building larger tanks. And then again, these guys like Indra. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna try and say his last name. He's looking. He knows what I'm talking about. Ways and there's you know Al Brown and those guys and Chris Chris Stewart keeping the larger Ofaga. It's I've been talking to them a lot. It's pretty pretty impressive the success they're having. So I'm excited to work with those again. I haven't kept Sylvatica in years, um, so I'm pretty excited for that again and uh, try and pick up different Pomelio that are around when I can. But uh, yeah, so I, it's been a long time since I worked with with the Ofaga. So I'm looking looking forward to that. It's, it's always good to have new challenges and mix things up. And, but yeah, mostly I'm excited to build you know bigger terrariums and to get all the plants and you know growing nicely and you know working with airflow and you know tinkering again. So yeah, no, definitely. It's uh, it's interesting. I, I I know they're like more of a tough species to breed and to get out in larger quantities. Do you think you'll ever be able to actually have them on the market, or do you think it's going to be a species you're sort of just trading with fellow hobbyists kind of thing? They'll never, just by their nature, you're not going to produce any obligate like you do a Tinctorius or even a Renegomia. No. But for sure, I mean, yeah, they, they can be bred. They can be traded beyond just with groups. Like people are, you know, breeding. I'm surprised how well they're doing with large obligates in Canada. But uh, I think, I mean, in the States, everywhere, there's so many people now breeding Histrionica and Lamani, all the stuff out of the Soros project. Um, yeah. That's stuff that I never thought, you know, 10 years ago I would, or, I don't know, I guess they've been coming in probably for 10 years now, but, you know, when I got started, like, stuff like Histrionica and Lamani, those are, you know, unheard of grail species, and now there's there's not just one morph, there's dozens of morphs. It's crazy. It's crazy, and it, people are having really good success. It's stuff that, you know, I thought I'd, I honestly thought I'd never see that that many being bred, but again, it just shows you when you get quality imports coming in. Like, these are, you know, these projects have done good jobs producing quality animals, and that's that makes all the difference. So these frogs aren't actually impossible to keep. It's just, you know, they're finally, you know, finally the hobby had access to really good quality stock. Um, and then I think that makes all the difference. So, yeah, all the credit's got to go to these, you know, like Erie and Tesoros and those guys for putting out, you know, really, really good quality stuff that allows hobbyists access to these dream animals that, you know, without the, you know, without the, the headache of, you know, traditional, you know, imports from the 80s or 90s when it was, you know, it's a different story of the stuff coming in. Then you had to really nurse it along and cross your fingers and, you know, really, you know, hope that you get a good group out of something. So. No, that 100% makes sense. And of course, with giving them their credit, we got to give you your credit as well because we wouldn't be able to have them here as hobbyists without, you know. A good man, all the credit. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mark, thank you very, very much for doing this. I really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, I've been super excited to start Dar Frogs with you for a long time. And, you know, yeah, and truly, it's an honor to have you on here. Um, so thank you very, very much. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. For, for sure. It. Thank yeah, you. Uh, yeah, yeah, likewise. Um, can you let everybody know um, if they want to keep up with you, where they can find you and um, all of that? 
Oh, we're on Instagram and Facebook at, <laughs> at Understory Enterprises Inc. I don't even know, man. They'll find me. I'll put, I'll put you. I'll put. You, I'll put yeah, all man. the links in the description, and also <laughs> check out the website. Go check out the blogs. Um, reading yeah. them in like story form was is is always super enjoyable. So definitely yeah. check out the the blogs on the website. Thanks. And, I appreciate um, trying to get more of those up too. We do have a new website, hopefully up by April. So awesome! I'm looking yeah. forward to it, and yeah. uh, hopefully we'll see you at the, uh, the expo in a couple yeah. of weeks. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah. Go check out his booth at the expo, and yeah, we'll we'll talk to you then, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Awesome. So, I am Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms. Daffy's Roundtable for the pot for the podcast. Thank you once again to Mark for coming on. This was a super awesome episode, and um, yeah, thank you all for watching, and we'll see you on the next one.